Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome to another edition of Tent Theology Podcast, the podcast where we try and explore what it might look like to renew our social and political imagination. And I call myself a political theologian, but keen-eyed listeners, keen-eared listeners might notice that isn't a whole lot of theology in what I do. I talk about politics a lot and I talk about Jesus a lot, but I need some help putting the theology back into theological politics. So who better than the principal of Westminster Theological Center, Dr. Lucy Pepiat, who is a friend, a former boss, and someone who I look up to as a systematic theologian who is going to help us think about the Trinitarian aspects of what we think and what we're doing when we move as followers of Jesus through this world. Lucy, welcome to Tent Theology. Hi, Stephen. It's great to be here. Now, I said you were the principal of Westminster Theological Center. Uh, You're also the author of several books. Can you please just rattle off some of the books that you are the author of? I can. Well, there's only four. So I think okay, I can only four. Rattle them all, can't I? <laughs> well, um, so my first book I wrote was is called The Disciple. And um, that was my reflections on kind of a theology of discipleship that I was interested in rather than than just practices that I found. I felt a lot of books on discipleship are about practices. Um, the second book that I wrote was Women in Worship at Corinth, which is a look at some of Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14 and some of the tricky passages on women and tongues and prophecy. And then my third book is called Unveiling Paul's Women, which is a more like a, a Bible study on 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. Um, and then my recent book is called rediscovering scriptures vision for women um, which is on more well all the new testament texts that explicitly deal with male and female relations and you are the principal of westminster theological center yes you can explain that better than i can i'm a fan of wtc i'll say that up front but you got you tell us what is wtc WTC is a wonderful theological college uh, that was established by my predecessor, Crispin Fletcher-Louis, with a vision to bring rigorous or academic theological education and training into the heart of the local church and to blend it with a a lively spiritual, uh, charismatic spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I took that over in 2012 and just feel it's an enormous privilege, actually, to work in a place and lead in a college where we've kept alive this vision of providing exciting theological education because it's it's uh, really sort of centered on the nature of God and exploring who Jesus is and the scriptures church history um, doctrine but in the context of worship and prayer and and real life so mm-hmm. because all our students are part-time it's all part-time theology um, to give people act to give anyone access to being able to do it 
Uh, and so we have lots of different levels. People can come in with very few academic qualifications or people can come in with degrees already um, mm -hmm. or come and do a master's. So we have all different levels. We take people from a huge range of different backgrounds. Um, some people are, you know, kind of medical consultants and then other people come with very little, uh, not even A-levels, um, and they can come in and we we coach them and help them and and encourage them to go on this academic journey and it's just so it's wonderful it's a very diverse place uh, and I love it and I think it's a great vision um, so it's yeah that's what we do. I mean you've also had I mean you actually have a line in political theology without sort of meaning to I don't think you've you've ended up employing Bob Ekblad for a while, which fans <laughs> of this podcast will know who he is. Yeah. Brad Jerzak was a teacher at WTC for a long time. Right. Fans of this podcast will know who Jerzak is. And I taught for you for a year or so as well. And I'm a political yeah. theologian. So you don't have a political theology department, but you seem to hire all these political theologians. So that's No, that's fun. right. And Roger Mitchell. Of and Roger Mitchell, well, who yeah. does some fantastic work on Kenarchy and kenosis and uh, yes. and the, the use of power. So yes. exactly, you've sort of cornered the market on I know. Well, Pentecostal I think... political people. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think it just that says a lot about our values and the yeah. kind of people actually who gravitate towards us and who we gravitate towards, um, who who understand the Christian life in a particular way and from a particular perspective. And mm. it's not that we're monochrome or, or homogenous. I think you would agree probably. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we're all teaching exactly the same stuff. Um, but that, but I do think there is this nice, in one sense, eclectic group of faculty who come from all over the world and have very different experiences um, and would express themselves quite differently. But on the other hand, there are these sort of underlying values about what who we, what we think human beings are and mm -hmm. how we think God interacts with the world and um, what we think the kingdom is, you know, and, and what he wants for for us yeah. and justice issues so it's an exciting place to teach and learn i think because it it people believe in transformation which is great so what's your line what do you what's what floats your boat dr pepiat uh, well i trained as a systematic theologian uh under murray ray who's a um actually well you know murray is a kierkegaardian yeah. scholar yeah. um wonderful theologian and person and friend now um and i wrote my phd thesis on spirit christology and a theological anthropology arising out of that um so I, and that actually i did really enjoy writing my thesis so, so it could because it covers some of the more the, the deeper issues of trinitarian theology of the person of christ um, but I wanted it to have some kind of application of what, so what does that mean then for us as human beings? And then I also had a foray into uh, what would that mean then for mission? Um, and so I, I probably, to be honest, tried to do a bit too much. Um, I think often PhDs are sort of funny things, aren't they, in the end? I'm not sure mine was that. <laughs> I always say I'm not sure mine was that. They try and they try and uh, act like they're the last and best word on a subject. To be honest, sometimes they're the first and worst word. 
<laughs> so, Very important. It's, it's good to have the first word. No, <laughs> yeah. I like that's true. The first of I mean, I do rather feel that. I sort of feel like I've, you know, I've moved on and I've done lots of other things since then. Um, but it was a wonderful training with Murray and I enjoyed the topic. And actually, in then I then I went off and did some work in Paul. Um and and the New Testament and women, which actually I found myself having a real interest in, and it was nothing to do with my PhD right. thesis at all. Um, and I don't really know. Well, that was a long story in itself. But anyway, I went off and did that, and then and subsequently, in the last couple of years, I've actually come back to systematic theology and and written a few essays and articles in books um, on Christology and the Trinity. So I would say, in a nutshell, the things that I I love are Christology, uh, Trinitarian theology. Although it's it's highly complex and very technical, so sometimes I feel, although I you know I know what's going on, I do sometimes think, gosh, I think there are. I'm not sure I want to wade in you know for my life's work into all that technical stuff. Whereas the more technical Christology still keeps me interested because I can see why people are asking all those questions about who is Jesus, you know, and how do we understand this God man? So, hmm. um, what drew you to this? Like in, you know, what drew you to this, to this aspect of all the broad buffet of Christian life and thought? Why was it Christological Trinitarianism? What brought you to that? Of everything I could have done, that's such a good question. I've never actually really thought about that. I, I did a degree. I, I did a second degree in theology by correspondence, which was really brutal, and I would never uh, recommend that to anyone to learn completely on their own. Mm. And so I did all this reading and sat exams, and then, and, and I did one module in doctrine. So my two favorite modules were doctrine and church history. I did two church history modules and one doctrine, and they were my favorite out of all the ten that I did. And the doctrine, so it was a, it was a sort of I was thinking, what would I like to do if I went further in this study? And then Simon Downham, who's the vicar of St Paul's Hammersmith, I had a chat with him at that crucial decision-making moment. And I said, well, I loved the doctrine module and I really enjoyed reading Colin Gunton's work. And I didn't even know really who he was. And he said, oh, Lucy, you should you should do your master's at King's because he's at King's. So that I was drawn to that. And I thought that sounds like a good idea. And now, very sadly, Colin died suddenly them uh, in the May before I started in the September. But I did end up meeting Murray Ray and Steve Holmes there. And so really, I suppose it was their influence um, that because I did my master's in systematics, because of my initial introduction through reading Colin, and then a friendship with Murray, who then encouraged me to do a PhD. So the natural thing was to go into systematics. And I suppose being from a sort of evangelical charismatic persuasion I Jesus was the most interesting topic <laughs> yeah. Jesus and the spirit yeah, you know right. I was kind of like well there wouldn't be a, and and you can never exhaust it you know if you're looking for PhD topics and you're looking for something to say that could add to the conversation I don't believe people say things that are 
brand new, you know. I mean, we don't. But but can we keep contributing? Absolutely we can, because the world changes and people change and who we think God is changes and who we think we are changes. So there's always scope for more contributions to the conversation. And um, and so, again, I went back to Simon. He said, oh, why don't you do something on spirit Christology? So I, you know, I didn't really have that many ideas. And Murray said, that's a great idea. So that was it. <laughs> so, uh, pretend, pretend that we're meeting at the back of church and we're having an awkward conversation. We're strangers and we're holding our lukewarm church coffee. And you say you're a systematic theologian. And I say, trying to be polite, what is that? What is that? Yeah, well, as someone once said to me, it was so funny. He was a vicar as well. So I, I said something like, well, I'm a systematic theologian. He said, is that what you call yourself? <laughs> So I said, well, it's actually what I am. It's not, it's not something I just made up. Um, yes, it's a good question. It, the study of systematic theology is the study of doctrine, the history and development of Christian belief through the ages. So it it's actually enormously exciting because you you're studying the nature of God and how he is perceived to work in the world. And so you draw in, uh, I mean, I, in my opinion, the best systematic theologians are rooted in scripture, but that's not always the case. I mean, and I think people get put off systematic theology because they might read a systematic theologian that's very philosophical, say, you know, just dealing with philosophical categories about God. And so they feel that's a bit dry and that's not really what they want wanted to to know. <clears throat> Whereas I think I I think I do have a a brain that also likes that side of it. I think I probably like conceptual things. I like big picture things. I like to be challenged and I find that systematic theology is uh it's demanding of my brain um so it demands something of me and and i never bored never never bored uh, you know i i take theology on holiday and i i if i can't sleep at night i read theology and so i would find i i feel like it you know i say to my students it's like someone going into systematic theology is like someone towing you out to the middle of the ocean and just dropping you in it and saying Find your way around, you know, because you because you're in the middle of this mystery of trying to fathom God yeah. in language, yes. through language. Yes. And so you look back to the people who've done it before you. You go back to the very early thinkers who who had, you know, very early, early Bibles in the set, not Bibles that we look like our Bibles, the scrolls and the writings that they had and and the Old Testament and their conversation and their prayers and their worship and their stories of Jesus. And they and then they're trying to put together who this God is, this God of Israel, who was one God, who and this takes us straight into our Trinity, you know, and then Jesus comes along and he's also God where well, he identifies with Yahweh. And then talks about the spirit and who who is also one with him and one with the father and and that's mind 
bending, isn't it? And and mind expanding. So I I find it's a wonderful pursuit, systematic theology, taught or by the right people, or if you encounter the right people, if you read the best systematic theologians, it it genuinely leads you to worship because. You know, you're reading people talking about God, speaking the language about God in a way that is full of awe and humility, I think. Um, and and they're describing this person that you love in new and fresh ways. And you think, amazing. So, Lucy, my lukewarm coffee is getting colder at the back <laughs> of church, but I am interested in what's happening. So now I'm going to ask my next polite question, which was, I'm grasping for straws. I'm in the, the deep water. You've thrown me into the deep end of systematic theology. I'm now trying to get back to shore. And I, th- and I, and I think, oh, you said the word Christology. That sounds a bit like Jesus Christ. What, yeah. what is Christology? So Christology simply is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's just the study of Jesus, and uh, but that takes you into all sorts of fascinating questions. So you can study Christology from multiple perspectives. Um, so biblical scholars study Christology looking at the Gospels. You can study Christology looking at the writings of Paul and what he thought about Jesus. Um, And then you can study Christology in the early church and what the early church bishops thought about Jesus and who he is and how we can understand him as the God-man. And then all throughout the ages, you have church people and non-church people reflecting on who is this person and so it's a, I mean it's just a multifaceted extraordinary study to study Christology and you can't put it in a nutshell um, but it does give you scope to choose in a sense one aspect of Jesus um, that either how how is it that so ontological questions who is he as a person the God man um, how do we understand Jesus as the Logos? Uh, how do we understand him as fully human, fully divine? Um, or you can study his teachings, or you can study him as the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one, or you, you know, so you can you you could take one of his titles or all of his titles, Jesus the Son of Man, and say, what does what, what's this telling us about him? And I mean to 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 get into the sphere of fully God and fully human is now to start to talk about anthropology and human life. And that's where the politics enters. The social and political life comes into the Trinitarian thinking via the incarnation, usually. What what kind of pol- politics or political thinking have you encountered as you've been doing your systematic theology? What, what are the sort of options out there mm. for, for the political use that people make of the Trinity? Oh, yes. Well, that's a very interesting question, um, because that's quite a modern phenomenon. Um, This idea that the Trinity specifically should inform uh, the way that we understand the organization of human institutions or governments. And it's a it's a contested idea. Uh, So uh, about 50 years ago, Well, in the last century, there was a lot more interest in the Trinity 
um, as a topic. So uh, Karl Rahner and Karl Barth were two major thinkers on the Trinity. Um, and then Jürgen Moltmann, who I think is a wonderful thinker. And I don't agree with everything that he says, but I think he's really provocative and, and interesting and, um, you know, empathetic. And in fact, his book was the first theological book I read uh, when I was working with the homeless in London. Um, and, uh, but but the, he took this idea of the Trinity as a social, socially organized, almost sort of group of these, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and then in a sense, took the ideals of how, if, you know, if God was going to relate to himself what would god how would god relate and then what would that tell us about how we should relate to one another so that's this kind of method of taking the trinity as beings in relation which is why it's called the social trinity uh, as an idea and then mapping that or or attempting to map that onto how human beings relate but that idea is that or, or, or that move theological move is very contested and and there are many people then more recently who have um critiqued that idea and said that's actually quite problematic um so somebody like karen kilby um steve holmes catherine tanner have all written with good critiques, I think, of this as a principle, coming at it from different perspectives, which we could talk about, but maybe I'll stop there. And I mean, from, from a social, all right, first of all, positively speaking, or at least from a social Trinitarian point of view, we're talking, what would be some of the features that are being drawn out when Maltman writes about his, that if we base our social life on the Trinity, what kind of features is he coming up with? This is this is what's really interesting, I think, is because, well, first of all, we don't understand the Trinity. It's not something that is easily um, conceptualized in our minds. We're trying to understand how, we're trying to understand one God, you know, here, Israel, the Lord your God is one. So God is always one. And, and the God that we worship is one God. But then God comes to the world as three. Um, we talk about the economic trinity. This revelation of God comes to us as three, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in one sense, that's not, that doesn't give us a load of clarity, really. In, in like, you know, we sort of feel like... It doesn't make life easier. <laughs> no, not really. No. I, and you sort of think it might because you think, oh, yeah, I get Jesus because I've got stories about Jesus. Um, but trying to explain to new Christians what is the Trinity, mm. you you have to use, I think, very simple formula that God is one essence or one substance and three persons. But then you immediately run into, well, what do you mean by a person? So, and and that's a, a very complex word to use for a, a, a member of the Trinity, you know, who is also fully divine, mm -hmm. is a person. And, and if you read something like The Shack, which I think is a really interesting book, it, he obviously is trying to get at this idea of how we conceptualize God as persons, because they are literally, feel, you know, you're dealing with people. Um, 
But that isn't actually what was meant by persons. Uh, they were trying to, to put across or to denote this idea that you have three subsistences. So you have you have three, well, Bart called it modes of being. I don't particularly like modes of being, but I understand why someone wants to emphasize more the one than the three people. You know, it's not three people because this is one. So to start with, the Trinity is very difficult, but what the social view of the Trinity was wanting to um, develop was the idea that they, what we see in the economic Trinity of the relations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is meaningful for how we should relate to one another. And now, that's not necessarily wrong, I mean, it isn't wrong, you know, because actually Jesus came to give us an example of how to relate to the Father in the power of the Spirit and then to one another. So that must be right. But I think where it gets problematic is where instead of looking at the life of Jesus and saying that's actually the way into God, which is this is Catherine Tanner's critique. Yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's her book, Christ? Christ the key. Christ yeah. the key. Christ yeah. the key, yeah. And so she has two chapters, Trinitarian life and then politics, where she critiques social Trinitarianism. And her critique is that we should view these things Christologically because as human beings, Jesus is our way into the nature. Our window into the Trinitarian yes. nature. And also it are. Um, the means by which we relate to God so you know ontologically um, by the power of the spirit and actually in terms of ethics Jesus's teachings have everything that we need in one sense to organize ourselves politically I I would say I don't know what you would say as a political but I would I would say that Jesus's life and teachings is the example to give us. And I think of something like Luke 22, you know, when they're arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus gives them this wonderful sort of just very short teaching that's so powerful that says, you know, who's greater, the one who sits at the table or one who serves, but I'm among you as one who serves. And and it, which I think is phenomenal sort of, picture of governance and he is talking about governance you know who are the people the people who lord it over you and I'm not like that and you mustn't be like that um and then says and it's because of that that you will then inherit kingdoms you know so so it's all about power and governance and the way people treat each other and it's deeply Christological um but it's not saying God as the Trinity, the three in one, behaves like this, so we should behave like this um, it, to one another. And so social Trinitarians would take the concept of something like perichoresis, which is an ancient word used to describe this idea of mutual interpenetration. Of So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons who are one because they mutually in in to penetrate one another. They are, have a per- perichoretic relation. Like a, they're flowing like a dance. They flow in and out. Well, yeah. 
Well, I think the kind of, but the problem with the dance picture is that it does sound as if the unity is coming because you have three people all committed to being together and to relating to one another in... Oh, so you asked me this question of, so what are the attributes that come out of social Trinitarianism as being, these are the attributes of God, so these should be our attributes? And this is where it's really interesting because actually social Trinitarianism lends itself to, to opposite views of God. Because if, if one wants to emphasize um, mutuality, communality, mm-hmm. empathy, um, self-giving, one will say, well, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are, you know, the one God in three is self-giving, mutually glorifying, um, canotic, uh, you know, giving up for the other, glorifying. And so then therefore we, then that should be how we treat one another. But once you start to, to make sort of strong distinctions between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Of course, there's a, there's a strong argument that there's a hierarchical function within the Trinity because the Father is never sent. The, the Son is sent, the Spirit is sent, the Father is not sent. So classically, the Father is unbegotten and the Son is begotten. Now, that's not that the Son is created, uh, but the son is begotten, so the son somehow emanates from the father's being. Um, uh, so it's a, you know it's all it, it's complex. And so Karen Kilby's critique is that what we're actually doing with our social trinitarianism, forming it into a social program, is that we're projecting onto the life of God. We project. We come up with with our ideal human organization and and we and then we project that onto the nature of god in his trinitarian being and then we say that then validates us our view of how humans should organize um their political uh, world or their family or their you know their marriage or whatever so and i think that's a i think that's a fair critique because you can see it working both ways. And and there are some people, for instance, who take the Trinity as a model, uh, as a hierarchical model that then validates the submission of women. Um, and that will be connected to a social view of the Trinity because the social view of the Trinity has more emphasis on the three rather than the one. And once you've put or put your emphasis more on the one, you you can't exploit hierarchical differences because the father is God, the son is God, and the spirit is God. Does that make sense? So a social trinitarianism is 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 always concerned about the minutiae of of social hierarchy or position, like where where you belong in the in the grand scheme of things, perhaps. Well, it, because it's to do with relations. It's so you can in in one way you can kind of spin it either way is what is how I see it, and and so Maltman and uh, Boff and I think to some extent Miroslav Wolf will because they are egalitarian you know sort of 
communitarian. They see the life of God as validating My that. tutor was Paul Fiddis. He was the principal of my college when I was oh, an okay. undergraduate. And, right. and he's a great perichoretic social trinitarian and his, his watchword was always we love community i mean he's a lovely man it was like being taught by a hobby he was like the best he was like bilbo baggins <laughs> he's like the best of the uh, of, of the kindly characters that you could imagine with a twinkle in his eye being taught theology by him uh, but One now i see been. that inadvertently he is bringing in he's smuggling in a patriarchal <laughs> hierarchy well no, well, it could be then it can be taken in the other direction. I think that's the thing. So again, I mean, like you, I find it enormously attractive, to be honest. I mean, I really do. And I find right. it sort of, I find it very winning this because it, because the people who adherence to this view uh, have a wonderful view of the world and, uh, you know, of how things should function. Um, and so, and I like that. So in one sense, I like their conclusions. I suppose I'm just saying that my method would be to get there a different way. And I'm, I'm persuaded by people like Catherine Tanner who say, um, why, why don't we get there Christologically? Okay, so what, so why don't we get there Christologically? What, what happens to our social and political imagination when we are Christological first? What do we get from that? What does that bring to the table? Well, uh, I mean, you've always got the projection problem, haven't you? I mean, one always has that of making God in our own image and reading the scriptures to validate our own and justify our own positions. Um, And of course, we know that Christians have done that all through the ages and we ourselves do it all the time. So I won't hear a single word spoken against Christianity, the religion on this podcast, not a word. (laughs) <laughs> no Christian has ever got anything wrong, ever. And every expression of Christian culture is exactly 100% correct. <laughs> I totally believe you. So, yes, yeah, so we know that we're not very good at it. I was actually reading an article this morning, which is going to go out in a Brill journal. Um, and I, I really feel bad because I don't know how to pronounce this professor's surname um but he's called vincent i would pronounce it bacote but i don't know if it might be something completely different but it's b-a-c-o-t-e now can i just pause you vincent bacote is going to be a future guest on the 10th theology podcast just so you know wonderful well i and one of my first questions to him was going to be how do i pronounce your last name Okay, great. Well, I'm well. I'm excited that you're having him as a guest because I read his um, article, and one of the things he talked about in he talks about in his article is the need for evangelicals to be in a state of perpetual unease as they read the scriptures, or really, in a sense, as the scriptures read them. You know, and he t- talks about this with specific in specific relation to justice issues and racism, and I I, I found that really uh, sort of salutary, and I took it to heart, and I thought I I think that's absolutely right that once we we lose that that the scriptures cease to unsettle us as people and as the church and as Christ followers, we're probably reading them badly. 
that so anyway he'll talk more about that to you and he'll probably he'll do it I mean you know he'll do it much better than I can obviously because it's his work but um but that's just to say I I appreciated his that point and so going back to so if the if the scriptures if the new testament is telling us about Jesus and telling us about what it means to obey him to love him and obey him to follow him um it must mean that our political imaginations should be being fired in a sense with unease uh, in some way. Or, or well, I, I say that to myself as a comfortable Western white Christian. That um, And so what does it mean for Christ to inform our political imaginations? I think it has to be rooted in the scriptures and then as a systematic theologian, I think that reflections, as you said in the beginning, on the fully human nature of God in Christ, what does that do to our understanding of who we are and who other people are and and the image of God in people? And, you know, so there's a whole raft of theology then that is given you know, life through the fact that Jesus is fully human, which is amazing, amazing, amazing that God, when he comes to us, comes as one of us. So it roots our political imagination. We don't have to go straight to the mix and the philosophy of what it might be like for the Trinitarian divine omnipotence to exist in a interweaving, multidimensional relationship. We don't have to do that. Yeah, we can say, oh, no, to exist as a fully human is to hold uh, the same attitudes towards poverty and racism and gender that Jesus did. All of a sudden, it's not it's not such a big mystery anymore. It's kind of there's a pattern that we can follow. Right. Exactly. And the and, and people like you who teach from the scriptures, those kind of principles, I think that's the that to me is is where the excitement lies you know that's the kind of we're looking at these stories we're looking at this person we're looking at god made human and when god's made human what does he do what does he teach what what does he empower us to do so you know the other thing is the power of the spirit so we see the power i mean you asked me why in the beginning why did i do spirit christology and to some extent i think i fell into it and i think probably a lot of people fall into their PhDs, don't know you why they did them. Lucy Pepiat didn't say, one day when I grow up, I'm going to be a spirit Christologian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to be a vet when I was at primary school. Um, so I, I, um, and I think, but this spirit, you know, the idea of, of reflecting on the spirit and who the spirit is and what the spirit does in our lives is again, I think has a, a, a deeply political dimension to it um, and does in the scriptures in the old Testament. Um, and the, the spirit in one sense is I think associated with justice. Can we talk a little bit more about this? Because so you and I are both in the, uh, you know, we're in the charismatic kind of camp. You know, those are the spheres that we tend to work in. And uh, people, listeners to this podcast will know that uh, essentially I began the whole podcast with a, with a complaint against Bethel and various Pentecostal 
uh, imagination, which is unable to follow its own theological principles through to its own politics. So uh, it's it's a common problem that spirit-focused Christianities sometimes have the worst politics. So how does the spirit relate to politics then? I think that, well, the spirit, the work of the spirit is enormously broad. Um, and one of the things I think that, well, yeah, you and I are both have both been immersed really in the charismatic church in, the, in this country, in the UK, um, which I do think is slightly different from other charismatic cultures. Yeah. Um, uh, but, also, but still has a tendency, charismatic culture, to be very individualistic um, and very much encouraging the individual believer to receive the spirit in order um, to deepen their own personal relationship with God. I mm. think that's fair. Is right. that fair? Um, right. and, and to know God to know God more. I, I mean, that's our worship songs are all about that, aren't they? I want to know you more. And so to know God more, to know more of his love. And all those things are good things. I would not want, you know, I celebrate those things. But Jesus had two commandments, to love God and love one another. And then, uh, you know, when he was asked about who is my neighbor, he told a story about the Good Samaritan. And yeah. so... He so his idea, I think, of a spirit-filled person is that the spirit-filled person will love God and love her neighbor, and and understand that her neighbor is the person she doesn't really want to stop for, and so and that's political, or, or and that's again going back to Vincent Bacote's idea that this perpetual unease you know reading the scriptures and thinking I don't think I'm there yet what more do I need um to do and be in order to become a you know an authentic Jesus follower so and the spirit but the spirit's the one who enables and empowers that and that's what's so beautiful about the Christian gospel I think is that although that we have this perpetual sense of you know, I can't, I can't live up to those things that the spirit makes us people that we're not, you know, the spirit gives us the grace to be the people that we really can't be. I mean, I can't be that person. I don't have that ability to love and give. And, you know, I'm very selfish person, but <laughs> Think about Jesus didn't stand up in the temple and say, the spirit of the Lord is on me to allow you to worship with a fulfilled, sentimental and energized emotional experience. Right, right, right. Said, the spirit of the Lord is on me to bring good news to the right. poor. Exactly. It's political. It's it political. Is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so I see that, that, you know, I think being filled with the spirit, surely should um, have this effect of propelling us out into the world to hopefully to enact some kind of justice. And, you know, and then Mary's, I mean, one of my favorite uh, passages it. in the Bible is the Magnificat, you know, so she, she thinks yeah. the coming of Jesus is going to be the great leveler. That's highly yeah. political. <laughs> and then if you read, I mean, I'm doing a study of Acts right now. I'm working, I'm, I'm recording a study of Acts. So if you read Luke Acts together, as the one book that it was intended, 
Mm. You realize that Mary's Magnificat, her prophecy comes true in the book of Acts. Right. You know, it's a, it's a right. whole story about the mighty being laid low and the poor being right. lifted up. But, yeah. and, but what I love about the charismatic church is that it, in its best forms, it, it is holistic in the sense that, you know, you can you can have this political perspective in for one in one sense for want of a better word or a justice perspective but you also have this very high value put on the individual human being and his or her well-being and welfare and mental health and physical health and you know so um Uh, yeah, the yeah. the shalom and the and the healing of the memories and the healing of trauma and you know and mm. I I think wow that because before I was filled with the spirit and I would still use that expression and I think it it that matters to me the I was really just political you know I was working with the homeless and I thought mm. that the answer to everything all the problems would be to get rid of the Tory government but. When I became a charismatic Christian, I began to understand that, you know, unless hearts and minds and histories and trauma and memories are healed and changed, institutions are not going to change. Um, And so I like, so, yeah, I, I like the fact that we believe in transformation and it matters to me because we see people here. I mean, you know, we have stories of people being healed in their minds and their hearts and their bodies and you know so you see the holy i mean the healing you can see in a sense the healing culture that the charismatics are open to has a has a, a socio-political element to it because it's it's healing or reintegration of a person back into a healthy relationships as well right exactly and i mean so once you're in the realm of relationships you're now in the realm of the socio-political exactly but a broken person can't have a healthy relationship and so and so that's interesting as well so going back to the trinitarian paradigm the if you're if you're relying solely on your trinitarian picture to give you the picture of then so this is how we relate i think there is also a, a sort of added hazard actually the christian gospel is the good news that I can relate to you now because you can forgive me and I can forgive you because we're forgiven sinners because of what Christ did on the cross. And so we can be reconciled to God and to one another. And that's why we relate as we do. But to root it all in the eternal nature of God, as you were saying, is sort of oh, well, God loves the Son and the oh, sorry, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves. And it, it's kind of you—you you could miss the fact that the reason we love one another is because of the cross, and because He loved yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, that is. Uh, it's funny. I've. It's so funny, Lucy, to be a, to have my living as a political theologian, and to be encountering ideas i've never thought of before it's really fun i really enjoy it i enjoy the <laughs> fact that i i've had a, a a proper conversation with an actual systematic theologian who's <laughs> shining a light on something that to be honest i probably should have known a long time ago <laughs> i i perpetually feel that though when i hear people speak i'm like i should have known i had no idea 
<laughs> it's part of the fun. That's part of the fun of just learning something new. And totally. yeah. Lucy, where can people go if they want more of you and more of your voice? And if they even wanted to study with you, where where can we direct listeners to to, to get more of Dr. Pepiat? Well, I would love people to come and study with us at WTC. So we've closed applications for this year, although I have a I have a um, suspicion that people will be <laughs> nipping in at the last minute. But um, by the time this goes out, I will imagine that next September would be a good starting point for some people. Uh, we do actually, just to mention, we do take a January intake for our master's, by the way. Okay. Good. So that might be relevant to somebody. Um, but yeah, it, all our all our information is on our website, www.wtctheology.org.uk. Um, and it's, uh, it's not just me. I have a whole raft of wonderful and interesting faculty who come and teach with us. So um, yeah, I'd love to welcome people to WTC, but only UK citizens, unfortunately can't take people from all over the world yet yeah there are the the rules of the land and nationalism still prevails exactly exactly we're working on it we're working on it (laughs) yeah Uh, lucy thank you so much for coming on to uh tent theology and i'm sorry that there was a little bit of uh audio distortion which i hope our listeners will forgive a bit of disruption there but it had nothing to do with you and uh (laughs) Uh, In fact, I I love talking with you and I I hope that you will come back again to continue this conversation. I'd love to. Thanks so much. But until then, go well and be well. Thank you. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.